The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Brandon Peters Show and the Summer of 82 at 40 series. The Summer of 82 at 40. A weekend by weekend look at the movies released during the summer of that year. As always, along for the journey from Forbes, it's Scotty Mendelson. Hello. Hello. This is the ticking down, winding down of it as we have one of our biggest. Weeks at the end, August 13th to 15th, 1982. This is a huge weekend, Scott, for us to talk about. So big. The fact I was dumb and I pushed a movie to this weekend (laughs) to save for another weekend. But here we are. And you know what? Normally start we start with the news of the moment. But Scott, you know what's bigger than the news? No. Star Wars. Fair. It has been five years since we first felt the Force, and it's stronger than ever. There is only one way to celebrate the fifth anniversary of Star Wars. See it again. Solo, Chewbacca, Darth Vader, Obi-Wan Kenobi, C-3PO and R2-D2. Come on, R2, we're going. Join in the celebration this summer when Star Wars returns to a galaxy near you. Star Wars starts August 13th for three weeks only. The Force will be with you. Always. We're recording this about a week after the 45th anniversary of the original Star Wars. And we're talking about the fifth anniversary. (laughs) More or less, yes. Uh, But if you haven't heard, it's directed by George Lucas, written by George Lucas, starring Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford. That robots guy, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. We we will talk. You know what? We'll have a debate about that, that car movie he had. Later in this episode with things, possibly. Uh, sorry, Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Alec Guinness, Peter Cushing, 
Anthony Daniels, Peter Mayhew, Kenny Baker, Dennis Lawson, David Prowse, and James Earl Jones as the voice of Darth Vader. Luke Skywalker joins forces with a Jedi Knight, a cocky pilot, a Wookiee, and two droids to save the galaxy from the Empire's world-destroying space station, the Death Star, while also attempting to rescue Princess Leia from the mysterious Darth Vader. All right, we know what the hell Star Wars is, but it had, in terms of re-releasing, it was, this is the fifth release okay so it was re-released in july of 1978 august of 1979 april of 1981 and now here we are in august 1982 this is the last wide re-release of star wars until the special edition in 1997 that was some fun research i was hoping for something here but this this little tidbit happened with the previous year, the April 1981 re-release is the first time the film was released with the title card of Episode 4, A New Hope. So this is the second time it's been appeared with that title card. It's got Star Wars re-releasing. Yeah, I, I dug. I'm like, I, is this the one? Is this where the... But I'm like, so it was I mean, the year after Empire they added the card. What, I'm a, did Empire, I don't know. I should know this, but mm-hmm. when Empire opened in theaters in 1980, did it say episode five? It was the very first one to say episode something. People must have been really confused. Wait, I saw Star Wars. <laughs> this is the second one, right? Wait, wait, what happened to Star Wars 2, 3, and 4? Yep. When Star Wars came out, the original thing just said Star Wars. It went all the way back into the stars, and then it just, it is a period of civil war. Later on, Episode 4, A New Hope was added, but Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back, was the first Star Wars movie to have it in the scroll. Then, a year later, it was retroactively put in A New Hope, which George Lucas constantly tinkering with Star Wars, and nobody cared until 1997. But even in 1997, no one really cared that much. Then, after 1999, they went back and cared a lot about it. Uh, There were some... There were, but it wasn't yeah. as loud. It wasn't I mean, as loud. I, I wasn't thrilled with some of you know, I like I didn't care. I mean, but yeah, the the the, the changes to start the first yeah. Star Wars, obviously there's a lot of CGI characters running around right. in the background. It's a little bit cartoonish. I'm not big on the Java scene because it you know, it's obviously a scene that was cut and replaced by a different scene because right. the dialogue's almost identical to something else. Right. Um which, which Aaron and Newarth and I went over that back in February on this show to celebrate the 20th and or 25th anniversary of the special editions. Um, but this this fifth anniversary, this is the prepper for uh, Return of the Jedi the next year. But I don't think Empire gets re-released this year, which is kind of weird. Maybe the early in next year it does. But um, yeah, so Star Wars just throwing it back in theaters every year after it came out. Making remakes money. of The Wizard of Oz go, it's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, this is my favorite uh, take on the searchers. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's fucking Star Wars. Um, yeah, and, you know, and even you know, I, whether it's your favorite Star Wars film or you prefer Empire or Sith or The Last Jedi, like us cool people, mm-hmm. um, it it still holds up as a standalone action adventure picture. Right. I mean, even if there had never been a sequel for whatever reason. And the only quote unquote lose end is that Darth Vader doesn't die at the end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but, but still, 
if you're a moviegoer in 1977 or whatever, oh, you know, the Grand Admiral Tolkien was on the Death Star. The Death Star just got blowed up. The Empire must be destroyed. The movie's over. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I mean, you know, I'm not going to sit around here dissing Empire, you know, retrospectively, but there are a lot of sequels like The Matrix Reloaded, for example, where at the end of the movie, you think that you know, now they're going to just kick ass and take names and the final, you know, the, it's over and the, the good guys will win in five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then when the sequel rolls around, it's like, nah, they're still on the lose again. Right. Um, you know, the, the big victory from the last film didn't mean all that much, which is realistic. It just, yeah. It's just sort of backtracking just to, again, The Matrix was not a movie that necessarily was intended to be a trilogy. Well, I mean. Uh, a quadrilogy. Well, um, well, after, I mean, Return of the Jedi, they scored the biggest victory of the Star War, and yes. uh, but it's still not over. I mean, there's still, like, they got, they took out the biggest powerhouse of it. People started overthrow, but there were still Imperials throughout the galaxy fighting their fight and that's where a lot of the expanding universe books pick up uh yes. the timothy zahn uh, trilogy about thrawn and stuff was about that like well after the emperor invader who was the next toughest dude out there and what's left of the emperor what's their last ditch effort here when they are the, uh, when they are the rebels you know and it's an interesting dynamic um there's things to always focus on um but you can also be a JJ and status quo it immediately, but you know, yeah. So without reason, just because that's how it was. <laughs> well, and you know, I I was one of those people that was a Captain Crankbutt about the Force Awakens, you know, on opening weekend, opening whatever, mm-hmm. and that was one reason. Is like, oh God, now every movie is going to be like this, sweet Jesus. Um, and I liked the Last Jedi quite a bit. Yeah. I thought, okay, you know. Maybe it was, you know, maybe Force Awakens was a necessary evil. Yeah. You know, it, it, you know, Last Jedi plays, in my opinion, is a very good and compelling sequel to The Force Awakens. It, it makes, makes it better. It makes it better. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe, you know, we'll see how it, uh, the third one comes about. And then, of course, The Rise of Skywalker opens and, and is what it is. And, you know, now I'm even crankier about The Force Awakens than it probably deserves uh. because I know what you know how that story ends and how and you know i don't know whose fault is this is i mean you know they'll never like tell every, us the true story well no and i imagine they never will um i mean i don't like every jj abrams film ever made but they're all well made and skillful and coherent yeah and the right of skywalker is none of those things frankly mm-hmm. um and so i i do wonder what the hell happened and how much of that was him versus him just trying to complete a coherent film with certain edicts from on yeah. high. And again, I don't know if that was Kathleen Kennedy at Lucasfilm or Bob Iger from Disney or whatever. I mean, come what may, from what I gather, Disney pretty much leaves Marvel alone. And I was always under the impression they did likewise with Lucasfilm up to a point. Right. Um, I do think, and this has nothing to do with the quality of The Force Awakens, but the film was so successful that I think it tricked Lucasfilm and Disney into thinking that that level of success could be status quo if only every Star Wars film looked and felt and played like The Force Awakens. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's funny, like, everyone went to see Force Awakens. Like, my parents, I don't think my parents seen a prequel. They went to Force Awakens because it was Mark you know carrie and and harrison all back and they went saw it had a good time and they had no cares in the world about going to the other ones they 
that was enough for them. She handed him the lightsaber. That was oh, we're done. That was, they they didn't pick up where that left off. They didn't That's care. That's interesting. They didn't care. They were like, all right, that was fun. It reminded us of the old one. That was it. The end. Um, because yeah, did. there's always going to be some folks who are only curious the first time fans or audiences for any mm-hmm. almost any franchise unless yeah. it's a complete shock that nobody saw coming yeah when that's where you get your quick go blockbuster thing with you know, yeah. like star wars for example right <laughs> although even so i mean you know empire made about a third of what's you know two-thirds of what star wars did attack of the clones did about two-thirds of what phantom menace did mm-hmm. and last year i did about two-thirds of what force awakens did yeah and you know not to toot my own horn but you know in late 2017 early 2018 i was screaming this is normal for star wars yeah stop pretending it's not <laughs> um Oh, you know, also getting back to the first one, the originals. Why don't they like we are at a big milestone for the, the original film and why can't we go see it in the theater? Like where's, you know, why don't they just do like a weekend? Like pop this like they were popping in once you granted home video was different, a lot of people see Star Wars, but like it's it's Star Wars. Like you could pop it in for a weekend and make some couple bucks do, do a bl- fathom events thing every five years like i don't want to automatically blame the evil king mickey mm-hmm. but i do know that disney has been very ironclad about you know letting fox films exist in theatrical re-release or rep- report re- gotcha. repertory yeah. theaters and things of that nature i know that's been an issue well i know that time. but why couldn't they just put they paramount put the godfather out for yeah. a weekend like um but yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I might have gone and seen it. You know, I haven't seen it in theaters since the special edition. Yeah, uh, like yeah, um, I, I I would go back. And I'd be like, oh, oh I missed it five years like ago. IMAX but, or PLF or something. Yeah, just do it for a weekend and pop, bring it out. Like you know, like why not? Like a rant. Like oh, it's a dead weekend at the bottom. Put Star Wars in there. Well, I think part of that is, frankly, I mean, not to be too conspiratorial, but I I am under the impression that Bob Chapek, who's running Disney now, could give two poops about theatrical. Yeah. So any choice that helps theatrical at the expense of Disney Plus mm-hmm. is a no-go. Right. Gotcha. Um, even though, you know, as I've been screaming as loud as, any, as I possibly can, anyone will listen, you know, films that do well in theatrical do better on streaming than those that that forego streaming or that forego theaters they can coexist yeah they they have to yeah otherwise you know again it's it's the difference between you know obviously mulan didn't really get a theatrical release but it was budgeted and intended to be a global theatrical release Mm -hmm. and that's what made it different from say lady and the tramp right um you know that's the difference between you know aladdin and pinocchio um and you know, even in, in Canto, which I think got a very compromised theatrical release. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, if Sing Two can do 400 million, I think Encanto can do better than 250. Right. Um, but that film has done noticeably better on Disney Plus than Turning Red, which is a yeah. very good movie, by the yeah. way. But you know, it has as you know, the film that didn't get any theatrical release at all for all intents and purposes has been performing less well while very good on normal standards versus Encanto, which got a theatrical release. Well, Encanto had the, ooh, we're getting a theater movie real quick. They had that attraction Uh, to it. And I think folks overestimated what it meant that Encanto dropped on Disney Plus over Christmas Eve and did just huge numbers. It's a musical. People Mm -hmm. are, you know, kids are still listening to their favorite songs on repeat, you know, three months, four months later, six months later, whatever. Yeah. Um, 
Turning Red is not a musical. Soul is not a musical. Luca is sort of a weird exception because that one's just been kicking ass since, you know, for a, the last year, basically. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, you know, Free Guy had a terrific Disney Plus and HBO Max debut after having a terrific theatrical run. I mean, mm-hmm. you can do both. Mm-hmm. Even David Zasloff, I don't agree with every decision he's been making with Warner Brothers Discovery. I would have kept Obi Emmerich, all due respect, mm-hmm. and I hope he doesn't toss Walter Amato overboard as a concession to the Snyder nerds. Yeah, but even he seems to understand that film. There is a viewership ceiling on films intended for HBO Max, and the films that do well theatrically do bet then do better on HBO Max. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, that's a whole other thing that wasn't around in 1982. Yeah, I uh, probably can cut this whole part. Star of Wars so was sorry was released, but no, it's all good. But yeah, so Star Wars, you know, long time ago, galaxy far, far away of 1982. You got to see it in August again in the theater, and it was probably awesome. And you couldn't wait till Return of the Jedi the following year. You got to see Raiders and Star Wars again in the yeah, Raiders, the Star summer. Wars, Poltergeist, ET. It's all of a Lucas Spielberg summer. Oh yeah, dominating. And now we will move on to the news of the moment. It's the news of the moment. When I realize, and I really have to remind myself that I've been working in films for 46 years. I feel I'm a very, very lucky man, not just because I survived, but because over the years I've had the opportunity to work with some of the best producers, best directors, best writers, best actors in motion pictures. It's been a very rewarding 46 years for me. And this has got to be the climax. Scott, you know what we like to report on here? Nuclear testing. I thought you were going to say hockey. Nope. U.S. uh, They're off. Remember, we had the championships. Uh, It's August. August 11th, uh, U.S. (laughs) performs nuclear tests at Nevada test site. August 11th. The South African Defense Force, SADF, raids Southern Angola. Uh, August 14th, the Iran Ramadan Offensive in Iraq. They're they're Kobayashi Maru. On August 14th, Pete Rose, a member of the Phillies, he has his 12,365th at-bat, which sets a record passing Hank Aaron. Still not in the Hall of Fame. August 15th, Equatorial Guinea adopts a constitution. And then uh, this week, uh, we have the deaths of this week. Uh, Alexandre Alexioff, a Russian-French filmmaker, passed away. Henry Fonda died at the age of 77. Joe E. Ross, a comedian. Patrick McGee, the actor. Uh, Hugo Thorell, a Nobel Prize laureate. So those are our deaths. Slight interdiction, just in case there are audiences young enough to not know. Mm-hmm. The reason Pete Rose is not in the Hall of Fame oh, yeah. is because I don't want I just don't want anyone thinking, oh no, poor Pete Rose didn't get in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah he did it to himself. Yeah. Uh, in the late 80s, he was caught. Not only was he betting on baseball as a baseball coach, uh, allegedly, if I'm not mistaken, he was betting against his own team. He claims he bet he has admitted to betting on baseball games, but never against his team. That's what he that's he has admitted to that. But I mean, the guy's stats should st- like that's I don't know to me that's, that's separate. I mean, you know, yeah, like it's... 
I don't like, we'll put you in there, but you're not allowed to set foot here. We're not going to have a ceremony. We're going to honor the stats you did or, yeah, you know, that's fair. Um, but yeah, I mean, the roid guy, the steroids guys aren't in like baseball yeah. is a stickler for their <laughs> hall of fame. Um, yeah. Yeah, born born this week in 1982, Tyson Gay, the sprinter, Devin Aoki, who uh, had a moment. She was in uh, Too Fast, Too Furious, if you remember, uh, and Sebastian Stan, uh, the Winter Soldier, or Tommy Lee, or speaking uh, of Mark Hamill, yeah, speaking of Mark Hamill, <laughs> um, not speaking of Mark Hamill, our next film, our first new film of the week, Tempest. You can do what you want. I dream what I don't do. Tempest, the story of a father and a daughter who went from dreaming dreams. Maybe I'll just find myself an island. Why can't you take me? To living them. Isn't this just so perfect? Who found love. I've never been in love. Magic. Show me the magic. And one another. Tempest, a surprising comedy. Rated PG. Check newspapers for a theater near you. Directed by Paul Mazursky. Written by Paul Mazursky. Leon Capet. Capitanos on a play by William Shakespeare, starring John Cassavetes, Gina Rowland, Susan Sarandon. Raul Julia is back this summer again. <laughs> Molly Ringwald and Vittorio Gassman. John Cassavetes gives a compelling performance as a man confronting a midlife crisis with extraordinary results for everyone around him. So Mazursky, he's kind of like, he does lots of acting. Uh, he directs Moscow and the Hudson after this and Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Uh, Capitanos, who wrote this, would go on to uh, to write Fletch Lives. So that's his future. Scott, Tempest. Were you tempted by tempt- Tempest? It's the second shockingly bad Raul Julia movie we've had this podcast. He's not summer. having a good summer. He's not. Um, it's, and, you know, critics hated this one even back, you know, 40 years ago when, well, to be fair, the movies of this caliber in terms of production value and acting and adult sensibilities were more common. So there Mm -hmm. were, we weren't like going, Oh, at least it's still a movie. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's well acted. I mean, Susan Sarandon's in it. Uh, Raul Julia is perfectly fine as a relatively creepy lech uh, <laughs> lusting after Molly Ringwald. Right. Um, I guess every boy that grew up with John Hughes films can kind of relate, but that's not my place. Um, but it, A, it's not particularly engrossing other than as an acting treat. It's incredibly long. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of those modern day Shakespeare adaptations where the material clashes with the modern day setting in a way that just renders the drama inert right. almost throughout. Yeah, his like uh his crap with like, oh, I can't get it up anymore type thing. Like that's way too stagey poetic y for what we got going on here. And it's Susan Sarandon, man. Um but yeah. Uh, I this one, you know, I was watching this one, and you know what movie I couldn't get out of my head? I was like, I wish I was watching this instead. I wish I was watching this instead of Summer Lovers, the one we had a oh, few God. weeks from weeks back. That wasn't that yeah. great. But I'm like, that had energy that had, like, I don't know, personality to it. Like, Raul Julia feels kind of out of place because he's this goofy guy. But I'm like, at least he feels like somebody here. Like, everybody else is like, I am doing things. Like, Sarandon's fine. 
I think she figured it out better than anybody else how to do this. Ringwald's just, she's young and she's with a bunch of vets. So you take that job because you're probably going to be, you know, uh, Cassavetes feels like he's like threatened by Pacino and trying to be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to show this kid what's up. <laughs> you know, like it feels like he took, like Pacino said no. And he's like, I'm going to take it. And I'm going to out Pacino Pacino here. Um, but yeah, I was this is a dullard. This is new. It's long too. It was like two hours and ten minutes. And just, you know, n- not to be snide, but if you want to watch a modern update of Shakespeare's The Tempest, watch Forbidden Planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, which is a loose, you know, sci-fi future set on an alien world variation on this this story. And certainly works on its own whether you know the references or not it's one of the more you know it's it's considered a groundbreaking science fiction picture i mean it was one of the first to have mm-hmm. a robot as a supporting character one of the first to have you know starship you know light speed travel uh i think it's the first major hollywood film to be taken to take place entirely off of earth right um starring leslie nielsen Yes, back you know in the kind of film that he in the kind of role that he was kind of spoofing in the third act of his career, you know, very straight arrow, very you know. But that is you know, it's it's. I mean, I know normally I'd be absurd to compare something like this to Forbidden Planet, but they're you know, it's it's. This is a good ripoff. Don't remake, or at least make sure everybody gets paid. Ha ha. Mm-hmm. You know, picture where you know it. It, it was a. You know, it was an iconic film of itself. The Tempest, Tempest, unfortunately, has no value beyond what if Shakespeare was in modern day. And, you know, arguably there's a case to be made that, oh, it's just it's even outside of the source material. It's a it's a rich people get, you know, too full of themselves melodrama with, you know, high production value and wealth poured and all that fun stuff. But it's not a very good one. Mm hmm. No. You know, as you said, you know, it's there are other versions of this movie, you know, this genre that are much more compelling. Mm-hmm. And other than morbid curiosity that really has nothing to offer. Yeah, this is just this is a forgettable film that people don't I mean, unless you're like hard for Cassavetes checking out his career cuz he has a career worth checking. He's a very interesting actor, very uh, director, you know, very interesting personality in the world of film. Certainly, if you're a Sarandon fan, skip it. I mean, I don't think she does anything too incredible here. She's good. Um, but, yeah, there's... It's no an unmarried woman. You're probably not into Molly Ringwald movies anymore, so you don't need to go back and see where it all began. You know? <laughs> I, I just... I'm just... Yeah, this was a dullard. I mean, in a week where we have relatively good stuff to talk about here, um, it this is uninteresting. Like, just... I don't know what to say more than this. Like, cool cool Greek Isle setting type thing, but the Summer Lovers did it better. I felt like I was in the culture in Summer Lovers there. I'm just people staying at a house because they're trying to keep away from everything, but there's no life to it. Like our only experience with the outside is Raul Julia, who's a creeper. Um, yeah. he's, he's the native, but like, it's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Tempest, don't be tempted. Is that, <laughs> That's our final verdict on that one. Don't be tempted by Tempest. Tempest so. Oh, I, I will not be. Wednesday on Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, when Daniel falls for Brian's old flame, jealousy erupts. Get, get your fist up, Brian! 
then Alice and the gang go on a treasure hunt. Just feel around the cat. But will Mel's diner survive? And on Filthy Rich, Marshall emerges as a macho man. It's time we started separating the men from the whips. You forgot your purse. Then TV's most unique private eyes are caught between the mob and the feds. Tucker's Witch wraps up a great new lineup Wednesday. This is CBS. Maybe there's better stuff on TV that week. So we'll look at the Nielsen ratings. The number one show on television this week, Scott, was called Filthy Rich on CBS. Do you know what that was? Don't. All right. So I looked it up. It is a sitcom, and it was a satirization of Dallas and Dynasty, those type of shows. So it was like a comedic version starring Slim Pickens, Dixie Carter, uh, Charles Frank, Michael Lombard, and Delta Burke. Uh, it, it ran for two seasons. People must have been pumped for this. This was probably the premiere episode because uh, it just it was not present at all. Yeah, August, it premiered on August 9th, 1982. Uh, so it would have been on this week of, of the movies. But yeah, people wanted that. Uh, number two is MASH on CBS. Number three, <clears throat> Three's Company on ABC. Number four, another rerun of WKRP in Cincinnati. Uh, number five, Too Close for Comfort on ABC. Number six, The Renegades on ABC. What is The Renegades? Do you know what that was, Scott? I don't. Uh, like, yeah, there was a... Looks like it was a TV series. Um, a drama. And, uh, yeah, it had... Uh, Patrick Swayze? Oh. Or something. Yeah, Tra- Tracy Scoggins. Uh, you remember her from uh, and Kurtwood Smith? Tracy oh, Scoggins. God. Tracy Scoggins, she was Cat Grant on Lois and Clark. So it started, oh, yeah. it was a TV movie first, uh, directed by Roger Spottiswood, who did Tomorrow Never Dies and Terror Train. Uh, but yeah, so that was. I enjoyed was. Terror Train. Oh, I love you know, Terror the, Train. The post-Halloween slashers, it's one of my favorites by default. Mm-hmm. It's the best Jamie Lee Curtis one without Halloween. Yeah. Uh, so it's about undercover investigators uh, recruited from the streets to prevent armed smugglers from getting their weapons to street gangs. So pretty cool. Uh, they're the launch of Swayze, because he was just in a music video for Toto's Rosanna, uh, where he was a background dancer guy um, and new to the scene. Uh, okay, uh Number seven, Cagney and Lacey on CBS. Number eight, 60 Minutes on CBS. Heart to Heart is number nine on ABC. And the Jeffersons rounds it out on CBS. So that's our TV. Moving to the movies where the kids were going this weekend. We're going to begin, Scott, with Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Is this necessary? That was my skull. I'm so wasted. Is this proper? What is it that gets inside your heads? Uh, Is this educational? No, but it sure is fun. Hey, bud, let's party. See Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where only the rules get busted. Rated R. Starts Friday, August 20th at theaters in your area. Check newspapers for showtime. Directed by Amy Heckerling, written by Cameron Crowe, starring... Our biggest cast list probably of this entire summer, Jennifer Jason Lee, Phoebe Cates, Judge Reinhold, Sean Penn, Brian Backer, Robert Romanus, Amanda Wiss, Forrest Whitaker, Ray Walston, Eric Stoltz, Vincent Chiavelli, Kelly Maroney, James Russo, Nicholas Cage, Anthony Edwards, Taylor Negron, Pamela Springsteen, 
sleepaway camp two and three pamela springsteen and uh bruce's the boss's brother uh, our sister uh lana clarkson and lana clarkson to write it out it's about a group of southern california high school students enjoying their most important subjects sex drugs and rock and roll this is like the biggest cast in the uh, 82 like everybody did something notable after whether it was one thing or a career or maybe a little stint insane casting here yeah there are a couple films in this era where like it was introducing a whole bunch of hot new young actors that were actresses that were going to be the next generation of stars mm-hmm. and to a certain extent they all went on to something you know say almost fires the one that always comes to mind a schumacher's an early schumacher mm-hmm. picture yeah. which introduced the quote-unquote brat pack rob Lowe, demi moore among others um uh this is a good film i mean that's not exactly a hot take um i was re-watching it for the first time in many 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 years again i was surprised at how not vulgar it is i mean yes it's an r-rated picture and there are moments where it earns its r rating mm-hmm. but it's not again it's not porky's revenge of the nerds or something like that you know there is a certain I think we evolved to this in this year because we had Porky's, which is like the bottom of this whatever sex comedy stuff. And then we got to Last American Virgin, which kind of classes it up a bit. And now we have found how to make it all work for everyone here. Uh, And can I just say it's what, 1972? So Roe v. Wade's been nine years old. 82. 82, Scott. 82. This is is not summer of 72 at 50. This is the summer of 82 at 40. Um, So, yeah, it's been nine years since Roe v. Wade was was the law of the land. Mm -hmm. And we have two completely normal, (laughs) uncontroversial commercial studio pictures aimed at the youth in which characters have an abortion without much of a fuss. Right. Yeah, And it's not, you know, nobody bleeds to death in a back alley. It's not considered a wrenching emotional choice. It's just... The biggest whoops. challenge is I need money for it, and I need to get a ride there and back. Yes. That's the biggest challenge, and I don't need to tell my parents. Like, that's, yeah. just, that's it. You know, it's, it's, and again, I mean, it's, it's, it's pathetic how far we've fallen in that sense, mm-hmm. you know, and in other obvious ways in terms of films that were very matter of fact about racism and sexism and class, you know, disparities and then just, you know, before everything became big budget fantasy clouded in metaphor where, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's where everything was X-Men basically. Right. But this film, I mean, I, I, I'm always amused considering what a reputation Sean Penn has always had for being the most serious of serious actors, that mm-hmm. this was basically his breakout role, playing right. basically a skeezier version of Bill and Ted. Right. And, but he's very good in this. It's, it's, and I love his, his relationship with Ray, Ray Watson. Oh, yeah. Who, you know, it's a somewhat surprising arc as a teacher who just, you know, doesn't want to give up on him. Yeah. You know, it's it's not even that he has to. It's just you know why not? You know, an olive branch. It's a very sweet arc. Um, well, there's an innocence to to Sean Penn's portrayal. Of this like, well, he comes off as like, geez, him. He doesn't realize what you can truly see. Spicoli doesn't realize that he is wrong or maybe needs to improve or he can't help. But like, like you see the part where he gets his note torn up or his schedule, and he's. I honestly disappointed. He was like, "Well, I'm ready for class now." <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. 
it's really there's like an innocence to Spicoli that I don't think a lot of other films understand. And I, I like that Judge Reinhold's character is in a non you know, in a non over the top way, very supportive of his sister. Yeah. You know, well, he's, he's the guy losing everything throughout the picture, yeah. too. Yeah. No, he is, you know, he he loses his fast food job that he takes great pride in, mm-hmm. and he struggles to find something equivalent thereof. Um he loses his girlfriend, like yeah. he was on top of the world. He, or he he's one of those guys who thought he was a lot cooler than he was. And then the reality starts to crash in on him later on. Yeah. Um and you know, the, the, the the end of the film is very random and weird in a way that I was amused by mm-hmm. in that, you know, it has a brief flirtation with violence. Obviously nothing comes, comes of it. Mm-hmm. Um, in which the two most, you know, the two leads of the film on the opposite sides of the track sort of end up interacting with each other and, and helping each other. Yeah. You know, it's, you know I assume people have seen that movie. Spicoli yeah. foils a robbery at Brad's convenience store. Yeah. Um, and it's, um, but yeah, um, and it's one of those films that, like Animal House, has a "Here's what happened to everybody afterwards" you know, right. montage. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it 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 earns its reputation as a very realistic, down to earth, you know, level headed, pitched at smart kids rather than panicky adults, mm-hmm. you know, teen sex comedy. Yeah, not a farce, but a comedy. It's a comedy, straight up. It's on. I think the brilliance of this is the lightning in a bottle pairing. Of Cameron Crowe and Amy Heckerling. Yes. Like, he has a tap on it, and she knows how to tell it. Like, that's... Because there's things here that I love that she's directing this, and she would prove her... Like, anybody would be like, well, it's Cameron Crowe. See Clueless. She does it again. Like, it's... it's Yeah. But there's... Specifically, I'll point out the scene where Jennifer Jason Lee, where she loses her virginity with the older guy that takes her to the baseball field. Yes. And something that I noticed that has got to be heckling and nobody else is the, her perspective where she's trying to look at something like that helps the moment feel special. And she's like this ratty light with flies around it. And then she looks at this graffiti on the dugout that says surf Nazis. And it's just like, it's just showing how, like, it's it, while it's a big moment in your life, it, it's not like this magical thing or all. You it's know, disappointing. It's, it's underwhelming. Disa- it's disappointing. Like, and it just that scene. I'm just like, yeah, a, a guy directing wouldn't have thought of that. Like, he'd have just like made and the guy like, ha, 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 ha. not to counter that because generally speaking, I agree with you. But that's one thing that I like about the first American Pie movie is that you know at the end, after three out of four of them have consummated their relationships. Almost without even saying it, Tara Reid gets up and she's just like, that was mediocre. I need to break up with this guy. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, she never outright says the sex sucked, but that's the implication. Well, the only one, the only one, it's funny because the one who was already in the relationship, that relationship ends and they all, the rest of them begin really. Like it yes. begins it with Stifler's mom, the band camp, and then the uh, Chris Klein one. Um, yes. That they all, those start after, you know. Uh, it, um, but, um, but no, I I really like the touches, all the characters, the bouncing around here, that just the the girls being a bit more honest and fun, and um, they, you know, of course, there's Phoebe Cates from this movie. This movie's famous for having VHS tapes chewed up at the <laughs> uh the pool scene, which is funny. I prefer it's, dry hair to wet hair, but whatever. Well, it, well, it's funny because like Heckerling gives us like the. 
you know, the fantasy version and the real version, like, oh, I got, I got in my ear. I got to go. Like, you know, it's just like her coming out. It's just like, oh, yeah. like it's the real version of it. And the male gaze version. It's, it's hilarious. And I, I, you know, I don't, I think this is a, this is the game changer right here. You know, we did have animal house before that's college. That's whatever. Um, and it's, over the t- I mean, those are characters, but they're not like, you know, they're character, they're cartoonish almost compared to this. Where were we with high school films before Fast Times? Because I'm thinking back, I'm like, well, yeah, I was thinking, I was like, well, we have American Graffiti, Cooley High, and Grease. Like, is that what we we have here? And this, I mean, this is the, I guess, this is the one that takes takes it from American Graffiti. Goes, I am the real. I am the, the tap on the youth now. I am, which Lucas wasn't tapping the youth of that day. He went back. It was a it yeah, was yeah, nostalgic it, it was, thing, but it could it could uh, it showed the themes of teens being timeless. Um, but this is the one. Yeah, like, what do you like better, folks? Fast Times or American Graffiti? Make that tough decision. Or even yeah. this summer, last American version or Fast Times? I could see people prefer, preferring that. Uh, this one, you get a little bit more diverse range of kids with it uh but yeah and you get a lot of mall nostalgia like i had huge mall nostalgia with all the stores and stuff hanging out the movie theater at the mall or the the food places um but yeah it goes through that school year um and it's it's funny it's got good arcs for people it's it does have an honesty to it it's not a flash flashy thing um yeah uh i mean it's got funny little 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 like deep cut touches like when uh, the uh, what's his name? Um, the jerk guy that whose penis is now back in the movie, by the way, <laughs> is back. Monster. Um, yeah, so he's back. Uh, but he tells the guy like, "Hey, put on, put on side one of Led Zeppelin four, and you know it'll let it do the rest or whatever to go on the date." And when they cut to him in the car, it's cashmere. That's not on Led Zeppelin four. He put the wrong album in. Um, thought that's kind of funny. I also looked at, remember the part of the class where the kids smell the paper? Yeah. That was apparently a thing back in the day because there was some <laughs> sort of machine that uh, wasn't like Xerox or something, but it, like smelled really good or something. Because uh, a lot of people think they're trying to get high off like the ink or something. That's not what it was. But yeah. But yeah, no, I, I like Fast Times quite a bit. Um, I, I, I had a little stint where I was like, it's not that great because, you know, I've always thought Last American Virgin was underappreciated because it got thrown more with Porky's and it's got a lot more to say, but they can both exist. Both are wonderful. Um, yeah, this movie is just, I don't, yeah, I don't know what else to say. Like it's, I think every six years, Amy Heckerling or so Amy Heckerling knocks it out of the park. You know, yeah. she's got this, and I don't think every one of her movies is terrific, but in 1989, she comes with, you know, Look Who's Talking, mm-hmm. which, by the way, prior to Wonder Woman, sold more tickets than any other solo-directed female movie or film directed by a solo female director ever. Gotcha. He did, like, 140 in 1989, which is 300 distance for inflation. Ah. Um, and then in 1995, she does Clueless, and I like Loser. You know, the, oh, the, Okay. The, I mean, it was not a hit. And mm-hmm. even then, you know, it, uh, you know, summer 2000, the discourse around it was weird because I saw so many critics and otherwise that were upset with it because this relatively realistic college age romance included a scene in which the female lead was roofied by somebody else, but wasn't date raped. <laughs> 
and you know is is rushed to the hospital in time to prevent any kind of whatever and it's, again it was a very early example of oh no this you know depiction equals endorsement hence this film is problematic Gotcha. Um, and I really like Vamps, the mm, vampire okay. comedy she did a few years ago with, or God, probably 10 years ago now, mm-hmm. with uh, Elisa Silverstone and Kirsten Ritter, right. which contains, among other things, a wonderfully sentimental performance from Richard Lewis, of all people. Oh, wow. So anyway, yay, Amy Heckerling. Yeah, Amy Heckerling rocks. I And I was at Loser, it was funny, I earlier this year. Uh, one of the music videos they did was uh, Teenage Dirtbag by Wheatus, which was the, oh. the soundtrack song for that. And yes. that one actually did very well. I just randomly I picked it out to go with the Satanic Panic series because it deals with that's what that song's about. Uh, it has a little bit about in there. And uh, that one got a lot of a lot of comments, a lot of feedback. I was like, oh, okay. So do you guys remember the movie Loser? Because that's what the music video is. So I wonder if people like Loser. I think they like Weedus, but I wonder if they it's a connection between the two. I don't but. think anyone remembers Loser. I did. Jason yeah, Biggs no, with I mean, that stupid hat. <laughs> yes. So. Um but anyway, so yeah, right. it's it's as good as you remember. So when the teen uh, fast yeah, times. Yeah. So when the kid the teens weren't um hanging out in high school, they were busy getting killed at Crystal Lake and Friday the thirteenth, part three in 3D. On Friday, August 13th, an all-new three-dimensional process will put you in the picture, whether you want to be there or not. Friday the 13th, Part 3 in Super 3D. Join Jason in the woods on his day, if you dare. Friday the 13th, Part 3 in Super 3D. Rated R. Friday the 13th, part three, opens Friday the 13th at selected theaters and drive-ins. Directed by Steve Miner, written by Martin Katrosser and Carol Watson, starring Dana Kimmel, Tracy Savage, Paul Kratka, Larry Zerner, Catherine Parks, Jeffrey Rogers, Gloria Charles, and Richard Brooker as Jason. Jason Voorhees stalks a group of friends who's just arrived to spend the weekend at a cabin near Crystal Lake. This is the one where Jason gets the hockey mask. So he's been wearing the hockey mask for only 40 years, though his movies have been around for 42, and he has appeared as an adult for 41 years. Uh, Before we get into this one, I'd like to point folks to my old podcast, Cult Cinema Cavalcade, where I did talk about with... Friend of the show, James Oster from JoeBelow.com. We talked about Friday the 13th Part 3, but the thing, the key is here. We interviewed Larry Zerner, who plays Shelly in that movie, and you can check out that interview there. He's a fun guy. Uh, he's a lawyer nowadays, um, but yeah, we had him on the show. But Scott, Friday the 13th Part 3 in 3D. A thoughtful and nuanced examination of Reagan's America as this slice of life's melodrama shows kids growing up in a world they don't understand into a future they can't predict and frankly can't trust. And with AIDS in the background as a persistent threat to those that dare try to mimic the sexual revolution of their parents' generation. Holy shit, that was almost profound. Never mind. Obviously, I was just being a dick. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, the jokes aside, the whole sex equals death thing, I'm sure that's, you know, that's always been a part of the slasher boom and, you know, right. as a reaction to the, you know, the sexual revolution and all that shit. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I'll be honest. Even when I was a kid, Halloween, the first one was very good. 
Nightmare on Elm Street, the special effects were cool, Freddy was neat, and there was just something a little bit bigger about those films. I always thought the Friday the 13th movies were shit. <laughs> <laughs> All due respect. You know, even like Child's Play, well, that's kind of cool. You got an evil talking doll that looks like a big action adventure movie. Um, the Friday the 13th franchise to me always represented the slasher film aired down to its bare minimum. Okay. In that, in most installments, but not all, there's nothing there except the sugar. Yeah. And frankly, this film is not one of the better ones, even on that curve. And having not seen it for a while, I kind of always thought, reputation-wise, that, you know, people like the fourth one and people like the sixth one because it's actually the closest one that's actually being good. That's a different, you know, I digress. But I always thought the three had somewhat of a decent reputation, maybe because just because of the 3D or because it's the one where he gets his mask. But... Or the disco theme song, which rules. Or the disco theme song, but I mean, frankly, I was bored by this picture, even by the standards of a Friday the 13th picture. And again, I could kind of appreciate two. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's, I think two is a pretty good horror slasher movie. I it really like the, 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 you know, the, it, it leans into the gallo, if that's how you pronounce that right. Mm-hmm. Um, four has terrific practical effects, and it's clear that they thought of it as a series finale, so they're going for gusto. Six, I genuinely enjoy. That was actually the first one I, I, I tell a story all the time, so I'm sorry, but I, that was the first one I saw as a kid, and I was kind of confused because like, I wasn't aware these were supposed to be funny. <laughs> And, you know, eight obviously is the mother of all ripoffs in terms of what is promised versus what is delivered. Yeah. Seven, whatever, nine, whatever. And then I don't have any strong thoughts about Jason Goes to Space. I, I, I ask you this Steve Miner directed two and three. Like he got the, and seeing both these movies, you, would you be able to agree with me that, like, these two feel like they were directed by different people, even though Steve, yes. Steve Miner did both of them. Like, it's well, yeah. really weird. It's really and, weird. And first of all, I think his H2O is one of the better Halloween sequels. Yeah. So this isn't, pick on for me at least, this isn't bag on Steve Miner day. I mean, one of the best Saw films, or the best Saw film, Saw 6, and one of the worst Saw films, Saw 7, are directed by the same guy. Yeah. Uh, he was somewhat forced back to contractual you know they basically they they picked up his option when they when paramount ironically tried to get him to uh, direct paranormal activity too mm-hmm. uh and then he was you know called back into service reluctantly and you know i'm not going to speak to his peace of mind but i would assume the final product argues that he didn't really want to be there right yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and i don't know if that's the case with steve minor here i i am not no he was fine here he they they went with the th- they brought 3D back. This is the movie that brought 3D back since the probably the uh, what the atomic era of horror movies and stuff. And this actually got a, a real big kick because then Jaws 3D comes out and a bunch there's a bunch of Metal Storm 3D. There's there's a weird uh, short run of 3D movies and this was new technology and that was you know part of the hook was you know Jason in 3D and it was going to be really cool and I, I get that uh, the movie plays with it so much it was always weird to me when i watched it like when i first was coming up in t i didn't know it was in 3d because the title isn't in 3d and you're watching this movie where people are like hey what what's going on here man yeah and and it's really weird and when i was younger this was a favorite of mine 
one of well, I liked it a lot, but as I've gotten older, it's kind of flat and just kind of lulls a bit. I I'll go to bat like I the first six of these Friday the Thirteenth movies I like a lot. So even on a bad day, I could pop. It's beaten potatoes, Jason. Whatever. Even though I don't appreciate this one near as much as I used to, it's probably if I had to go those last six. This one might be the bottom of those now uh, because I think five is a sleaze masterpiece. Uh, the Danny Steinman one. It has guts. It's got guts. It's, it is directed by Danny Steinman, who did porn before it. Uh, he did that Linda Blair Savage Streets movie, which is rad. Um, but he is a, a sleaze master. Like I feel like the aesthetic for the Ninja Turtles cartoon was inspired by Danny Steinman. Like it, it, yeah. so there's a weird hybrid of his movies and those cart those old cartoons. So I'm like, why do they feel like Danny Steinman films? But uh, this one, I don't know. It's got like character and stuff, but it just I, the people are kind of just. I mean, it's weird to say annoying for a Friday the Thirteenth one, but it does introduce the weird thing. Jason kills a pregnant woman in it. That's interesting. So you're building up. You're building up. So part one, oh, he kills teens. Or no, his mom kills teens. The second one, oh, he killed a handicapped guy. The third one, he kills a pregnant woman. And the fourth one, when Corey Feldman's there, you're like, oh, he'll kill a kid. He will kill a kid now. So that there's that kind of ramping up. Um they, you know, Cheech and Chong, obviously popular. We've talked about their fourth, I think it was their fourth movie already. So that influence gets thrown in here a bit. Um, the male and female couple where the guy looks like Tommy Chong and uh, she's no, she's no Cheech. Uh, you got the weird biker gang stuff. It's yeah, there's a lot here. Um, couple cool kills though. I don't know. It, it's, uh, it does take a while to get to the, the end stuff, but anything done decent here is done way better in the next movie or the previous film. Like it's it's weird. Like this has a nice chase. I, I I feel like it's got colorful enough characters you remember them, but I don't know if you're fond of them as you're watching it. Like Shelly, you're never gonna forget Shelly. Uh but yeah, it's it's fallen off for me a lot in the years. I'll still I'll still watch it anytime. Like I said, the first six of these, good stuff. Um the Friday the thirteenth, but this one, yeah, diminishing returns as it's gone. And I think a lot of people hold on. I think it'd be fun in a crowd with actual good 3D technology to watch. it's a, Jason gets his mask here. Uh, Brooker, Richard Brooker's pretty good Jason. Um, there's the hint of, mate, did Jason rape her when he when she was younger? That's in this movie where she talks about her dream and then I remember he, that. he, atta- he attacks like, her and then, and then I woke up and nothing. Like, that's out of character for Mr. Voorhees, but that's okay. Yeah. So, oh, they were figuring it out. There's no character. That's what I love about these is that like yeah, fa- fans have tried to piece together some sort of timeline cotton like guys. They <laughs> just made another one. Going along. They just made it. Where what happened at the end of the line? Okay, that's fine. We'll we'll do something. Like it, and maybe it's because I grew up on slashers and stuff. I had Star Wars. Star Wars is retroactive, even in the original trilogy. They retcon stuff. But I grew up with like slashers, sequel like that, where it's like I get so laugh. Like there's such a strict adherence to like canon and like continuity stuff that I don't care. Like make me a good thing that's just good rather than, oh, well, it's bad, but it follows the continuity or whatever. There's like such a strict adherence and the 
ability to not mess with the the, the fear to mess with or change things. It it's it's all made up to begin with, folks. And like that's why I don't care. Like oh, canon, canon. I'm like fuck, canon. Like honestly, to me, like I've always don't care. Give me a good movie first, or let's have fun. Um, like I don't need to worry about all that because it's all made up. But I know people can hate me for that. But fuck, canon. Like <laughs> like it's gotten to the point where stupid stuff is like just like adhere to like we can't recast actors anymore like you know it's 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 funny i mean kathleen kennedy you know maybe she was just talking off the cuff and i've been saying that before she recently said something but about you know we we can't recast legacy characters that's what the lesson of solo is and you know it's not the lesson lesson of solo solo. yeah the lesson of solo is that people didn't want a young on solo movie Mm -hmm. which a lot of folks were screaming at the top of their lungs since 2013 right but I think it's interesting that when you watch, and obviously it's a different demographic, you know, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, when you watch, you know, Star Trek Strange New Worlds on Paramount Plus, which is pretty good, by the way, mm-hmm. it's it's a prequel, it's it's a standalone, it's very much trying, it's so trying to be like the original Star Trek that it comes off as a version of the Orville. It's like the um, Orville, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, neither criticism nor compliment. I think the Orville is excellent. Mm-hmm. But... I don't know his name, but there was another actor that plays Spock there who's not Leonard Nimoy and not Zachary Quinto. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, I couldn't give two poops. No. You know, it never, you know, it hardly ever crosses my mind when I'm watching the show. I mean, recasting people goes back to uh, Dick Sargent or Dick York. Yeah. That was fun. Like, who, second Becky, full house. Like, it's a role. It's a role. It's a role. It's a role. People do stage shows, they switch roles all the time. You could do it on TV. You can do it on TV. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it's a role. Somebody might be better than others. Yes, some people create those roles. Some people, like, you know, like, uh, some people are just, like, I'll roll, like, you know, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. Do we want to see someone else play Indiana Jones? Because that's one he created from crap, but we could. And, and, and that is sort of the difference where you deal with something like, you know, James Bond, which was, you know, a character from a book or Batman, who's from a comic book. Right. Versus, you know, John McClane, who was just Bruce Willis. Right. As a version of his star persona. Yeah. Even though it's one that he sort of, you know, finessed through Die Hard. That's a yeah. conversation. Right. Um and yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, yes, casting a, a an unknown actor as young, you know, Han Solo was one of many not great ideas in the journey to Solo, a Star Wars story. Right. But if the surrounding film or television show is good, or at least something that people want to see, mm-hmm. then it will be a minor, you know, it'll be at best a minor piece of trivia. Right. Right. No. Um, yeah. I mean, they switch up Jason every Friday the 13th. Movie. They do. Like, they don't play. Like, I don't know. Do people get mad that Richard Brooker didn't come back in four? Like, it's it's not that big a deal. Like, to me, it's it's a whole bunch of. I know these aren't like. Life isn't this magical storybook that has these endings. If, if you live in the world today, it's shit. Like, these movies are <laughs> made up. This is made up stuff, dude. This isn't like. Uh, then Star Star Wars already and and these movies already have their missteps already. Like it's okay to make a couple more. It's like nothing. Like it it's just weird to me that this whole like fear of recat. Like I'll, I would see another at this point actor play Luke Skywalker. I'm fine. Better than what we're dealing with now. And yeah, and you know it's funny when it comes to Indiana Jones. May that, the force be with you. Uh, <laughs> but. 
I, Indiana Jones, I mentioned that, but other like Sean Patrick Flannery, some kid, and then an old man have all played Indiana Jones before. River Phoenix has played Indiana Jones before, so there's been other actors that have played him before. Um, but yeah, uh, it's I. I guess I come from the school of you know these slasher movies, James Bond and Doctor Who, where the roles change, people different people play them all the time, and I don't give a shit. Because ideally, the essence of that character is there in the script, and some can bring it out different ways than others. And that's fun. Have fun with these things. Mess with them. So fuck canon. That's this episode. I for, agree. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the movie or the show being good of its own accord is the only thing that matters. Mm-hmm. Everything else will fall into place. Exactly. Uh, no. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I mean, you know, for example, you know, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight have story beats and character turns that are wildly different than the comic book source material. Right. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. <laughs> because the movies on their own accord are good. Those that do can sit in their loser corner party of three. But not a single person that I've found complained that, oh, no, you know, Joker created Two-Face. Because it didn't matter. It Not made sense in the story they were telling. Yep. Yep. It made sense that Joker killed Batman's parents in Tim Burton's Batman yeah. as well. So. And again, in a in a standalone film that may never have inspired a sequel, mm-hmm. you know, that would make sense that he would come into his own as Batman, save the city, and oh yeah, avenge his parents' death too. Yep. Full circle. Full circle. And there you are, the 40 most popular records in America, straight from the official Billboard chart. So also uh, coming full circle this week is uh, Casey Kasem's Top 40, uh, the week of the Top 40, the Top 10. Uh, coming in at number Top 10, we have a debut, a Wasted on the Way by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. No Young, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Uh, number 9, dropping in, here we go, we got Vacation by the Go-Go's, which is... I believe Friday's music video that we're going to be talking about with Jennifer Rayford. Number eight, Soto's Rosanna slides down to number uh, to number eight, of course. Uh, number seven, Keep the Fire Burning by Ario Speedwagon moves up a spot. Also moving up a spot, Even the Nights Are Better by Air Supply. Staying at five, Hard Even to Say I'm Sorry. Such a wonderful video. Uh, number five is Hard to Say I'm Sorry by Chicago. Fleetwood Max Hold Me is holding at four. Abracadabra has no tricks this week. Steve Miller Band stays at three. John Cougar is at number two. Hurts so good. And again at number one, Eye of the Tiger. Survivor. Eye of the Tiger. So good. Real of the fight. Can't get enough of that. I don't know if I mentioned it. It's been a while since we recorded, but that song, if you take out Physical by Olivia Newton-John, is the biggest song of 82. But wow. Olivia Newton's John's physical is a carryover from 81's. So fair enough. But you did most of its business in 82. So, so also, um, you know, having the eye of the tiger this summer. Uh, an officer and a gentleman. That's a horrible segue, but we're going. Finally, after weeks of having it pop up and mention the official wide release for an officer and a gentleman. Zack Mayo had no business defying the odds, let alone beating them. You ready to quit now, Mayo? Gotta program yourself. You'll make it. How did you slip into this program? You kicked me out of here, then I ain't quit. You quit. First, you have to get past me. Understand? Don't you understand? I love you. Richard Gere, Deborah Winger, an officer and a gentleman, rated R. 
An officer and a gentleman is now showing at these selected theaters. Check newspaper for showtimes. Directed by Taylor Hackford, who has a really interesting career. Just sorts, lots of musical stuff, but random stuff. Uh, written by Douglas Day Stewart. So another Blue Lagoon alumni shows up this summer. Um, so mo- everybody but Brooke Shields is back from Blue Lagoon. The director, the writer, the star was in, one of the stars was in two movies. Uh, this one stars Richard Gere, hot off the heels of American Gigolo. Uh, Deborah Winger or Deborah Schwinger. After this is coming after Cannery Row and right before Terms of Endearment. Uh, David Keith, Robert Robert Loja, Lisa Blount. Lisa Eilbacher, Louis Gossett Jr., David Caruso, and Grace Zabriskie. All right, so a young man must complete his work at a Navy officer candidate school to become an aviator with the help of a tough gunnery sergeant and his new girlfriend. Scott, I'm gonna be I'm gonna admit something here. Blind spot for me. I'd never seen an officer and a gentleman. Uh, it had been a very long time since I had watched it. Um, and it's one of those films that you pick up by us popular pop culture osmosis. You know, everybody knows how it ends with him mm-hmm. waltzing into the factory and carrying her out, you know, while dressed in his Navy uniform. You know, a lot of people remember the whole, you know, I got nowhere else to go. You know, that's a line that sort of got used as sort of a, you know, a comedic overpunctuation point. Right. Um, and to a certain extent, Lou Gossett Jr.'s drill sergeant was, I'm not going to say he was the first you know, hard-ass drill sergeant of modern Hollywood, because that's ridiculous. But he's certainly one of the ones that you think of when you think of that trope. Well, yeah. Well, and um, to, to credit, uh, Arlie Ermey was his on-set advisor. So if you notice a lot of similarities <laughs> to the one later in Full Metal Jacket. That's fascinating. I a lot of that, that dialect's coming. Yeah, he was his uh, coach. For it, and so there's lines that you're like, I, I heard that in Full Metal Jacket, and it's like, oh, okay, okay. So, um, and uh, you know, as a movie, I think it's, it was terrific. Um, mm-hmm. I think it still holds up as a thoughtful, nuanced, specific drama. You know, with with regular people going through very life sized, you know, conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very specific point of view, and feels very authentic in terms of the wor- the world and where it's set in terms of the Naval Academy and what have you. And it's very raw in a way that yeah. it was, I'm not going to say it's hardcore because it's not, but it is an R-rated picture where you have sympathetic characters espousing, you know, frankly, unsympathetic viewpoints. I mean, to what extent it would, you know, fl- you know, I don't want to go into, oh, couldn't do this today or blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the, you know, Lou Gossett Jr.'s characters, a lot of his, you know, many of the, fire-breathing monologues that probably helped win him the Oscar mm-hmm. probably wouldn't fly today. Oh, no. You know, for better or worse, because a lot of it is rooted in homophobia, yeah. even if it's performative homophobia. It, homophobia um, and, um, like, sexism to motivate. Yes. And, you know, it 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 does play, you know, it's, it's weird doing this film and Firefox, which was a couple months ago, mm-hmm. Because they really are sort of, you know, you take Firefox, you know, the the, 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 the fighter, you know, the aerial adventure footage and the, yeah. the race against time, and you throw in the the naval melodrama and and you know uh, uh, 
oil and water love story and you sand it down to fun for the kids, PG rated and cut and shot like a music video and you have Top Gun. Right. Yeah. No, 100%. And, you know, this film is obviously a more mature, sophisticated picture. It doesn't feel like it's written by robots. And Mm -hmm. that's the first Top Gun. I've never liked the first Top Gun. Uh, I mean, hell, I'll say Days of Thunder and Cocktail are better. Um, partially because they feel more authentic slice of life portraits, frankly. Gotcha. Yeah. Top Gun's a vibe. It's not a, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a, fair. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I keep forgetting we all did the commentary a week ago. Right. <laughs> um, but but this picture, Richard Gere is terrific. This is justifiably a breakout performance. Yeah, I can uh, see what people saw in him a lot with this mo- with this and, movie, even more than Days of Heaven almost. Like, yeah. Just, yeah. But this is more of, you know, obviously this is a crowd pleaser. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if the very end of the film, to me, I don't want to say rubs the wrong way because it's fine, whatever. It feels a lot like Dirty Dancing where like the end of that movie, which is the part that everybody loves, is cheesier and sillier and more, you know, feels like a test screening request than the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying the film needs to end in an unhappy way or whatever. That's, you know, the film earned its happy ending. But it does feel, especially because it's so almost abrupt, but, you know, the the, the, the big romantic climax almost feels it's like from a different movie. But it works. It works because the film that precedes it has earned that. And because one reason that it's so abrupt is because the the film doesn't feel the need to have characters spell out their character development. Right. Well, and the thing here is it it needs to happen because he she has the arc where she keeps falling for the same trap that her mother did and yes. then he needs to not be his father. And yes. that's why I think it it works here. It's de- I mean that's he needs yeah, to make a but, different choice. Yeah, we need to have. We need the ultimate point of where we have grown from from the beginning yes. of this movie. Yeah, you know, he, he, they both choose their own destinies. I, I thought it'd been uh, funny yeah. if if she'd pull out the picture and it was Robert Loja. Oh, God, <laughs> I was afraid that was going to happen when I, I first started so. talking about that. I thought so. I was like, oh no. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, that's why people talked about this movie. Yeah. Um, but no, it's, 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 it very much stands out as, and even in 1982, it got rave reviews and considered mm-hmm. an unusually good picture and unusually compelling and, and nuanced Hollywood drama. <laughs> so it's not even a matter of, oh, you know, back in those days, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. you know, even back then, this was an exceptional picture. Yeah, it was very popular. I mean, it was the third. You oh, know, it was a blockbuster. And did 190 million, not to skip ahead, did $190 million worldwide on a $7 million budget. Right. And yeah, you know, people wanted to see it. And, but like Academy Award wise, you just, it could not get the best picture nomination, though. That, that's it the crazy thing. me considering yeah. how, you know, it, Lugasa Jr. won. He was the first man to win, but first me, uh, first yeah. black man to win best supporting actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, only the fourth black person to win an Oscar period after right. Hattie McDaniel, uh, Sidney Poitier, and, uh, Shit, uh, Shaft. Round three. Um, no, he the, didn't. No. Oh, Oscar Isaac Oscar, Isaac Hayes. Thank Isaac, you. Isaak, Isaac Hayes. Uh, yes, Isaac I was like, Hayes. I was thank like, Roundtree did not win an Oscar. I'm like, I oh, should wait. have had that in front of me before I went in that spiel. Yeah. Um, and you're right. You know, Taylor Hackford has, you know, has a very journeyman career. Mm-hmm. You know, he follows us up with Against All Odds. He does White Knights, which is a a drama about a, a male ballot a ballot ballerina tried to defect from Russia. 
which spawned a very popular, or at least in this day, very, you know, buzzy song from uh, Gregory Ides. Say you, say me. This video is on MTV every day. Um, well, it's being a song. This one had the Academy Award winner for Best Original Song, yes. the Up Where We Belong by Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warnes. And the funny thing is, this movie feels like one giant buildup to that song because the score, yes. it's in the score, it's in the different ways, different ways. I'm like, when are they going to play the fucking song? And right at the credits, there it goes. And you're like, something that I think does that pretty well, ironically, is Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. Where, you know, it really waits mm-hmm. to the, you know, right. For, you know, it almost chooses an ideal rubber band snap moment to finally kick in the Lady Gaga song that we've been waiting right. for the whole damn time. Yeah, yeah, uh, um, yeah. But yeah, it, it was it was nominated for uh, best screenplay for the screen, which is now best original screenplay. Um, it had uh, and Deborah Winger was up for best actress for this movie. Um, she did not win. Yeah, even though she's um, delightful, dude. She she's a firecracker. Every movie she's in, she owns it. She's queen of the frame and then somehow fades away after the 80s like- well i think part of it was by choice you know she knew that the kind of roles that she was that hollywood was making was was yeah. n- not what she wanted to do and not where she would fit in right you know when you're you know when it's in the 90s and you're seeing you know the matrix and america you know all the respect quality notwithstanding you know armageddon and american pie and and mm-hmm. what have you you know waiting around for that one uh, uh unfaithful or that one last night in rodane or what you know or a legal thriller or something like yeah. that you know she walked away yeah. now she she has still worked since then. oh no she no yeah she pops still up now yeah. and then and there's actually a documentary about that called Searching for Deborah Winger, which deals with, you know, why she decided to leave mm-hmm. and what it says about the industry that she didn't feel that she would be of value there. I mean, I feel like she was, she was in a, that of a type where it was like there was like, you know, you have Deborah Winger, you have Karen Allen, you've got Margot Kidder. They all kind of fit that kind yeah. of, that type. And then later they would evolve into like Lori Petty, Courtney Cox, that type. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't want to put words in her mouth because I don't know, but I would assume that's a similar reason to why Cameron Diaz retired. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, she hasn't been in a movie since uh, The Other Woman in 2014. Right. Excuse me, Annie in 2014. Oh, okay. And frankly, I mean, you know, this comes to mind because I was rewatching Night and Day, you know, for, you know, Top Gun Week or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, fun movie, by the way. Fa- a fascinating time capsule in terms of it was the first movie made after the quote-unquote couch jump thing which is not actually that but whatever where you where tom cruise's was basically said you know the entire purpose of the movie was to show that tom cruise was still a bankable you know movie star mm-hmm. i think that that film's detriment frankly i like it but i don't know if you've seen night and day right uh-huh yeah yeah the entire film leads up to a reveal that he's actually the bad guy yeah and it works it makes sense it is plausible mm-hmm. but because of when that film was made you know, if this isn't his collateral era where he could play a bastard, you know, they have to walk it back almost immediately. Yeah. And whatever. It's a shame. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I do think, you know, if Cameron Diaz ever does want to come back, you know, come back, I think discourse being what it is, and in terms of who the critical adults in the room are today, I think she would be welcomed back with open arms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was pretty, she was great at com- I mean, comedies yeah. were like good bread oh. and butter for her. Uh, be they rom-coms or just straight-out comedies. Yeah, in her Very shoes, good, she's yeah. spectacular in that. Yeah. Oh, that was one of uh, uh, Curtis Hampton's better movies. Yeah. 
Yeah, but no, uh, you were, yeah, Deborah Winger, I enjoy the hell out of her. Like, I, I'm a big Urban Cowboy fan. Um, of course, she's in that. Uh, but like, just and every time I explore some old movies, she shows up, and I'm like, man, she's just she's great. But you know, despite you know, I was I was looking up on this, despite this being a lot of these people's biggest financial and critical successes, nobody liked working on this movie. They they hated it. Fair enough. She she hated Richard Gere. Called him a brick wall. They would not see each other until time to shoot. He was miserable on this movie. Um, just nobody liked being being there. Just kind of crazy because it looks like one of those ones where people are having fun on set. Like there's a lot of fun scenes in this movie. Uh, this is probably like peak drama. David Keith, right? Yeah. Like I don't think he like he in, it winds up in schlock and like low budget things from here and you know not unlike deborah winger richard Gere is someone that mm-hmm. you know again he still works and he is argued and it's not my place to say whether it's true or not that he was indirectly blackballed in hollywood because he was very outspoken against the you know the government of china mm-hmm. and he did make a movie which basically was two hours of china is bad right red corner uh, red corner yes yeah, yeah that and, was an interesting phase for me where i started like t- like seeing Richard Gere movie, he had like Primal Fear, he had Red Corner, and he had Mothman Prophecies, where I'm like, oh, this guy's making some interesting stuff now. Like, Even I, in 2002, I remember thinking Mothman Prophecies is the kind of movie we don't get much anymore. Right. Um, But, and again, I don't know if that is true, but I, I think part of it, just again, the kind of movies in which he thrived became a scarcer and scarcer priority for the Hollywood star system. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, he never went. Like, he was never a Hollywood like, system. Yeah, he was always more drama, like William Hurt ish kind yes. of, like where you barely William stepped Hurt, out Tom of Berenger. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, whether because of China or whether just because he has no interest, you know, I, I don't expect to see him as a supporting character in you know Captain Marvel two or something like that. Right, right. Um, yeah. no judgment, but you know, yeah. Um. I think that betting is very funny in Captain Marvel one. Um, And it's interesting watching this picture again, how similar it is in terms of structure and overall arc to pretty woman. Yeah. You know, it is also a sort of a modern day Cinderella story in which arguably, you know, the princess saves the prince from himself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, also this, this movie was drastically different casting wise than what it ended up. I was like, cause like gear was far from the first choice. Um, like John Denver, I was reading John Denver, Jeff Bridges, Kurt Russell, and John Travolta all turned it down as well as many other names made up for it. Uh, but Jennifer Jason Lee was actually in this and had to drop out to do fast times. And so Winger replaced her. Huh? How old was she? She's deceptively <laughs> older than what she looked at the time. Fair enough. But um, uh, Sigourney Weaver and Angelica Houston, at some points in the script going around, were in that role as well. But they were I actually going to film with Jennifer Jason Lee, and she had to drop out. I, mean, I think one reason the film works is because she looks like an adult. Yeah. Um, in the same way that a lot of early Tom Cruise pictures, where he's paired up with somebody that, you know, ha-ha, taller than him, but also older, more mature, and, you know, someone with some grit under their fingernails. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this was before, you know, all of Tom Cruise's love interests all started being 31, come hell or high water. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for Top Cut Maverick, they found Jennifer Connelly, who at the age of 46, looks 31. So, yeah. Uh, you know, um, 
I <laughs> I did like Lisa Alback character how she is um treated in this movie. Like she's by her peers is treated like a peer yeah. throughout the movie. There's never there's no her arc is just getting through it, you know, like um, she gets through it off screen, more or less. Yeah, off screen. He does, you know, they have him help her get yeah, through yeah. the final. He gives up on his record through a, a course to help her through it, but you know, and she said that she did mention that the most challenging uh, thing for her in the movie was to try to act like she wasn't as fit as she was supposed to because she was actually <laughs> in the best shape of her life during this. And she she'd have Beverly Hills Cop, which would be huge uh, in like a year, or t- a couple years uh, down the road. But um, that's an interesting thing that they just let her be. Like they didn't like make a focus on like oh the girl. You know, she did struggle at the obstacle course, but she wasn't the only one struggling at the obstacle yeah. course. No, I, I think there, it was done in a very matter-of-fact way. Yeah. Which, again, this is a very good movie. It was it is, a very yeah. good movie in 1982, and it's a very good movie in 2022. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of the ones that, you know, it's a modern classic where you can see why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's great. And, like, you know, we always say, like, well, back in the day, a movie like this would not be the third highest grossing film of the year. No, it wouldn't. At all. But uh, speaking of, uh, let's see how this box office rolled out this week. Uh, we have a lot of stuff hitting it. Um, almost every movie that comes out this weekend winds up in the top 10. But Scott, take it away. Friday the 13th, part three in 3D. Uh, $9.4 million at 1,079 screens. Around 820 of those were 3D equipped, and I think the rest were just drive-ins. He decapitated uh, E.T. Yes, in 3D. Um, yeah, uh, 8717 dollars per screen. The third Friday the 13th film would eventually earn $34.5 million. The highest which- grossing one until Jason Freddy versus Jason. Wow, that I didn't. I don't. I should look that up. Hold on. Yep. Well, I mean, obviously, I believe you. I'm just. I should have had that pulled up. There's a little um, bit. There's a little bit of a uh, downswing on final chapter, but it's about about on par with part three, and then the diminishing t- returns start beginning. And I don't I think the first it, one was whatever. Nope. Uh, three is the biggest. Had the biggest opening weekend and well, biggest, biggest opening. I'm sorry. Well, no. Yeah, because I, I think I think the the gross of three is supposed no to be- uh, part one and thirty nine. 30, oh, okay, okay. I apologize. It's, I remember when Scream first came out, and you know, you were seeing when it was it was at you know fifty seven million, and it just wasn't stopping. And it's like it was already the biggest grossing mm-hmm. slasher movie ever. And I was like shocked to see that, like before that, the biggest were like Pet Cemetery and Friday the Thirteenth Part One, which had outgrossed you know everything other than Halloween at that point. Um, okay, yeah, anyway. yeah. The original, yes, the original is the biggest, and then I think well, I apologize. The, this is the biggest grossing sequel. Biggest grossing sequel, and then uh, part four would uh, be thirty-two nine. Yes, thirty-three, uh, and mm-hmm. yeah, and then yeah, everything after that would be over under twenty, and be about like everything would start making like twelve to fourteen, or yeah. Um, it's funny, and I'm, I'm sure you've talked about this on one podcast or another, but to the extent that we define the slasher era as like the '80s in general, it really was sort of like a flash in the pan moment. It's it's eighty through eighty through eighty four. And it's mainly 80, 81, and some, uh, and not really here at eighty two um, yeah. too much, but eighty eighty one has a bunch of them, 
and then they're about to die. So they're so at this point, part three comes out. It's big, but there's no other slasher. So the next one, they're like, kill the dude. And the same year they kill him off for good, Freddy Krueger arrives. But Freddy, funny enough, was beaten quite a bit by Silent Night, Deadly Night. That was the movie people more people went and saw for two weeks until that got pulled. And then Freddy was kind I of know that Friday. Freddy, if if Silent Night, Deadly Night doesn't get pulled, I'm not sure. Holy shit! But yeah, so Freddy. I mean, Grant probably had a slower open, but. Um, yeah, Silent Night, Deadly Night was doing better than Nightmare on Elm Street when that came out. I think they came out the same weekend, almost. Pretty much, because it opens 1.4 mm-hmm. and tops out at 2.5. Yeah. Um, And then, did Nightmare come out in November or September? It's November of uh, 84. Um, yeah. It's and, definitely 84. That I do remember. Yep. And uh, then, yeah, the funny thing is, they're like, Silent Night, Deadly Night was taken out of the theaters due to protests. I'm like, no, they made their money back and then said, fine. <laughs> I mean, if you look at it, they doubled their they doubled their budget or tripled their budget, and then said, "Okay, we can pull it. That's fine." Oh, you're you're right. Not that I didn't believe you, but it's fun mm-hmm. to look at this. They they both came out the same freaking weekend. Same freaking weekend. And Silent Night, Deadly Night did better. My God, um, that's hysterical. Um, because yeah, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street topped out about uh, twenty five. Part two, I think, made twenty six, and then oh, know, Nightmare climbed four and three and four. Yep. Nightmare climbed. It was yeah, a yeah. Four did forty five or three did forty five. Four did forty nine, and then they dropped from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, because that comes the 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 dark cloud year of eighty nine where people were just yeah. done. It seems like you know, as you were saying, it was like 80, 80, 81, 83, maybe eighty four, and then like nothing or not nothing, but you know, then eighty eight. There's a flash, you know, brief comeback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, eighty nine. You have Freddie, Jason, and Michael all with entries and all <laughs> bottom out. Um, and then they decide to kill Freddie am- and Jason right after those. Yeah, it's amazing how much eighty nine basically killed almost every existing franchise that was up to that point. Leatherface was suppo- Leatherface was supposed to come out yeah. in eighty nine. It got pushed to like January, or February of, of of ninety, but that would have got thrown in there too because that mean, didn't make any money. It, it almost it almost killed Bond. It almost killed Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, Indiana Jones rode into the sunset. Well, that was a huge hit, but yeah. Yeah. Um, um, he went on his own terms. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's it's crazy that 89 is a weird turning year. And yeah, horror after, like from 89 to till Scream, it's like, what are we doing? Like, what's yeah. going to happen? I mean, you have Silence of the Lambs. You have In Silence of the Lambs, you have your you know, horror for grownups for a few years. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah so a little bit of slasher lesson here. And uh, so, yeah, we, we got E.T. next. Yes, sir. I lost the plot here. Hold on, let me get back to the... Here we go. Uh, E.T. with $8.448 million in weekend 10, uh, dropping by 11% and crossing the $200 million mark, mm. by the way. Um, an officer and a gentleman would go wide after two weekends, weeks, or, you know, two weeks of limited release. It would earn $5 million in 719 screen, uh, screens for a $6,981 per screen average, bringing its total up to $17 million. It would leg out like a mofo. Uh, yeah, it's it's going to be in the top 10 until December. Okay. In the top five until December. I don't know why, but like it drops from five to 12 in pre-Christmas. There might be something weird about that. 
But anyway, um, and it would top out with 120, $129.8 million domestic in 1982. Whew. And that's the biggest, second biggest behind ET. Or let me see, is Rocky, I don't think Rocky Four is even bigger, hmm. but I could be mistaken. Okay, no, I know Raiders. That doesn't count. Yeah, Tootsie. I forgot about Tootsie. That comes out oh, yeah. in December. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's it's you know just offhand. You know, ET does three fifty nine by the end. Tootsie does one seventy seven. Officer and Gentleman does one thirty, and Rocky Ford does one twenty four. And then Porky's does one hundred five. The top five. We have five films making over a hundred million dollars domestic, which is. I mean, that would have been impressive even in 1992, let alone 1982. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then, sorry, I keep bouncing back and forth on these no, lists. No. Best Little Horror House in Texas is chugging along with $4.4 million after Weekend 4 with a $48 million total. Star Wars. Hey, returns. look at that. Top five. $3.766 million on a thousand seventy screens. Uh Bringing it would eventually earn 15 million in that re release, hmm. uh, bringing its overall total pre special edition to 322 million dollars, um, which was second at the time behind ET. Uh, and of course, it would eventually be passed by Jurassic Park. Um, times are tough all over, sixth place, uh, 3.64 million dollars for a 13.3 million dollar 10 day total. Fast Times at Ridgemont High opens with 2.5 and 498 theaters. How many kids bought tickets to Things Are Tough All Over? Isn't that one R-rated? Oh, was it R-rated? I thought oh, they was... went to Star. They bought the Star Wars. Oh, they bought the Star or Wars? Or E.T. because nobody was expecting them. Let's see. Uh, things Are Tough All Over was well, rated R. Yeah, it was rated R. So, no, never mind. Sorry. That's okay. Um... Fast Times would eventually do $27 million domestic, which was very good for what I'm sure was a very cheap film. Hmm. How much did that cost offhand? I should have looked that up. Fast Times, movie, budget. $5 million. That sounds about right. Uh, number eight, The World According to Garp is $2.3 million for a $14 million 24-day total. Night Shift, $1.75 million for a 9.5 total. Excuse me, Rocky Six. Uh, three, still at three, number so ten. Rocky Three. Rocky I'm Three. Sorry. Rocky Three, dropping from sixth to tenth. It's on the ropes. On the ropes. Twenty-nine percent down, but still in the top ten after twelve weekends in theaters. Yeah, a hundred and four million domestic so far, uh, and that's pretty much it. I mean, Force yeah. Vengeance. That's one point one five. Went up four percent. Yeah, that's worth. Uh, uh, would end up with uh, three point six by the end of the weekend. Poltergeist for the first time out of the top ten. Oh yeah, but still only drops twenty five percent. And pirate movie gone. Pirate yeah, movies. Pirate movies. Yeah, that drops fifty percent. In weekend two, which in 1982 is not good. Yeah, uh, Young Doctors is out of the top ten as well. Yes, it's a number eleven with twenty million dollars, mm-hmm. and that's basically it. Yeah, crazy. Uh, next uh, week, the beast. Ooh, I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, next. Yeah, next week is a it's a nice two for next week. We're yeah, this is it. We have five movies this week. We will not have near as much. We have two and two to end this out. Uh, and two for a bonus if you go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Brent. Give us money. Give us money. You get Porky's. You get the Sword and the Sorcerer. 
you get uh, the proper epilogue to the summer of 82 at 40 by going that back to the beginning. Brand didn't talk about the sword and the sorcerer. Let me talk about it, please. Let talk. me talk about porkies. Porkies. So, yeah, but uh, so that was money it. you have and peace you crave. Peace Look, you I'll crave. stop now. All right. Uh, but that'll do it for this weekend, August 6th through 8th. Uh, or no, it was 13th through 15th. Scott, where can people keep up with you? Forbes.com, the ticket booth, Scott Mendelson. I'm at Twitter at, at Scott Mendelson. All right. I'm Twitter and Instagram at Brad4KUHD. Tune in next week as Scott and I for the third weekend of August 1982. Uh, about the class of 1984 that teaches how to master beasts, I think. <laughs> that is not inaccurate. Roddy McDowell, Mark Singer, next week on the show. Uh, all that and more as the summer of 82 at 40 continues for just a little bit longer. We're almost at the end. Everything that has a beginning has an end. I see the end. I see the darkness coming. I see death. Bum, 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 bum. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The Summer of 82 at 40 and News of the Moment themes by Press Maxson. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. <laughs> <laughs>